The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody! Help! Not just anybody! Help! You know I need someone! Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Episode 163 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host, After retiring from medical practice, I became an activist for family caregiving. Our topic today is mental illness, treatment, recovery, and stigma. Stigma is when someone judges you based on what they believe is a personal characteristic you have. Sharing is a common experience for people who have a mental health condition. Stigma may be obvious and direct, such as someone making a negative remark about your mental illness or your treatment. Stigma may be subtle, such as someone assuming you could be unstable, violent, or even dangerous because you have a mental health condition. Stigma may be so strong that you may even judge yourself, and stigma has many harmful effects. Today's topic, mental illness, treatment, recovery, and stigma is so important. To discuss it, our guests are Dr. Chris Somerville and Dr. Mark Reagans. Uh, Chris is the CEO of the Schizophrenia Society of Canada. He's been the executive director of the Manitoba Schizophrenia Society since 1995. He's one of the 11 non-government directors of the Mental Health Commission of Canada. He serves on numerous boards and committees, including the Mood Disorders Society of Canada, the National Network on Mental Health, the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health, and several ethics committees. With an earned doctorate, he is certified with the International Association of Psychosocial Rehabilitation Services as a certified psychosocial rehabilitation practitioner and as an assist suicide intervention trainer with Living Works. Mark is the medical director of the MHA Village Integrated Service Agency in Long Beach, California, an award-winning model of recovery-based mental health services. He's worked there since 1990 as a psychiatrist for the adult service coordination teams for the homeless assistance program for the Transition Age Youth Academy and now for the welcoming team. His many writings include his short book, A Road to Recovery, which has been translated into Japanese and Korean. He was featured in Steve Lopez's book, The Soloist. He's won various awards 
uh, that include the American Psychiatric Association, Van Amerigan Award, and the John Beard Award for his outstanding lifetime contribution to psychiatric e rehabilitation. And he was selected as a distinguished fellow by the American Psychiatric Association. So welcome to the show, Chris and Mark. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. Likewise. Thank you. Great. Starting with Chris first, please. Uh, please, will you tell us about the work of the Schizophrenia Society of Canada? Society of Canada existed for 33 years, started in 1979 by families who felt like they had no voice uh, in the mental health system at that time. And so today it's a national not-for-profit uh, charity associated with 10 provincial schizophrenia societies. Our mission is similar to that of many uh, other mental health organizations, and it's to improve the quality of life for those affected by schizophrenia, those living with schizophrenia and psychosis and their family members. And we do that by public education, one-on-one -on -one consultation, peer support, advocacy is a main uh, priority for us at a national level. And the organization is transitioning from what it once was, from being just exclusively biomedical to being more biopsychosocial, spiritual, and recovery-oriented. Mark, same question for you, but about the work of the MHA Village. Mark, please tell us about that. So the MHA Village was originally established in 1990 by the California legislature to be a model program of what the best mental health services in the community could be. They were worried about the failures of deinstitutionalization and want to show what good programs could accomplish. And they gave us enough money and resources to put together a truly comprehensive recovery-based program. We focus our program on people who have failed elsewhere. People are homeless or in jail, hospitals are institutionalized. People who have multiple diagnoses, often psychosis, lots of substance abuse, lots of child abuse, lots of child welfare placements. We focus on welcoming them because these people are often not welcomed in our world and helping them rebuild their lives. We have services around apartments and homes, getting jobs, going to school, friends, children, getting reconnected to your families. And we have substantial success with people who didn't have success previously in their lives. People move through our programs, beginning with the outreach programs on the streets and hospitals, through the intensive case management programs, on to, all the way through to the wellness center where they take increasing responsibility and are more and more living in the community. The program has done rather well the last 20 years, not only in providing these services for people being a model for California's Mental Health Services Act and for the recovery movement in America in general. It's won a great number of awards, and me and many other staff have gone around doing presentations and lectures and we're consultants on recovery-based transformation in many places, including in Canada. Chris, to you now, what is the situation regarding stigma in the lives of persons living with schizophrenia? Well, when you look at the word stigma from the Greek uh, language, it means an indelible mark or brand or, or label, and it's always, when it's been applied to an entire class of people, it, it always implies a moral ju judgment. So whether that's racism, ageism, sexism, homophobia, and now as we talk about mentalism today, and the reality is is that people with lived experience of mental illnesses like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and other mental illnesses, many of them will say that it's the hardest thing to live with. That is the social prejudice, the stigma, uh, that they are uh, blamed for their mental illness, they are shamed. Um, the stigma manifests itself by people not wanting to get close to them, fearing them, calling them names, talking behind their backs, even laughing at them. Stigma 
stigma looks like this, uh, people thinking that they have nothing in common with people with mental health problems, considering mental health problems to be embarrassing or, or disgraceful, uh, and that such people as uh, people with schizophrenia, they, they may think they are unpredictable, violent, unintelligent, and all those kinds of things. Uh, a young lady I was talking to said, she um, she had a home and a great boyfriend, and she loved where she was working, and she'd got promoted, and then unusual thoughts and feelings started to, to happen to her. And she says she was diagnosed with schizophrenia, and that's when the bottom of her world fell out. She says uh, mental illness was a death sentence because I was just not accepted in society. And how could I cope? The only way was for me to be secretive. I was sad for a long time living that with that diagnosis. I lost my boyfriend. So stigma always leads to discrimination, which is basically social exclusion from society. Mark, what is the situation regarding stigma in the lives of the persons whom the MHA village helps towards recovery? I like Chris's definition description of stigma and the lady who was describing. I think many of our, their lives, I think stigma tends to get them in three distinct ways. One is it can be dehumanizing. You get defined as your illness. You're no longer a person. You're now a schizophrenic or a manic um, or a, a borderline. You, and you start not seeing the person anymore, but just seeing their illness. And this starts affecting your whole life. So, for example, instead of finding a place to live that can be your home, we look for a place for your illness to live, a treatment facility. Instead of thinking of your friends as your friends, we start thinking of your support system for your illness. Instead of thinking of a job as a job, we think of something therapeutic activity for you. Or your family, instead of being the family you love, they become co-treaters or involved in the treatment of your illness. If everything comes to your illness it starts becoming that any feeling you have is defined as a symptom of something and you lose your all humanity that way. The second thing I think affects our people is prejudice, that people have prejudgments about what mental patients are like. There's a great deal of this is from our media, but if we tend to think of them as being violent, we tend to think of them as frightening, as incurable, as homeless, as people we want to stay away from. I was once doing a time when I did some advocacy at Sacramento State Capitol, and I was along with four people who had serious mental illnesses alongside me. They were experienced uh, advocates, and I wasn't, and they talked to the senator there, and they were advocating, I think, for more money for the system. They all told their sto- they told stories of how we needed more services. And when it came to my turn to talk, all I said was to the senator, I said, so when you think of people with schizophrenia and serious mental illnesses when you're writing these laws, is this the kind of people you imagine? Is this what you think people with schizophrenia are like? Or do you think of Jack Nicholson? And he just looked at the other four people and said, no, it sure isn't. I never think of them as being very able to speak for themselves, as being highly competent. I think of them as being all these other prejudices about mental illness. And the third thing that happens in their lives, a good deal because of the first two, is they experience a great deal of rejection. The vast majority of people who are normal in our world will walk to the other side of the street to avoid someone who's acting crazy or who's homeless or who's using drugs. We're taught we, sh- we should stay away from those people. You better let a professional come instead. It's too much for any normal person. You don't want to share your life. You better not have a relationship with someone who's a drug addict or who's mentally ill. And we get more and more rejection. They cannot find a place to live, a place to work, 
uh, someone to marry, a place to go to school, a place to go to a restaurant, even a church to go to tends to be difficult. I know one lady who wanted to be a nun, and they wouldn't accept her um, because she had a mental illness. One of the comments I'm on make about them is we often focus on the stigma people face in the community, from like policemen or from fi- um, firemen or landlords or employers, but we don't should think as much, at least, about stigma within our own health and mental health fields. Think about how much stigma doctors, social workers, mental health workers make as well. Oftentimes, we do the dehumanizing. Oftentimes, we have the prejudices, thinking people can't do any more than they are now, and oftentimes, we're rejecting holding them at professional distance or not letting them do things in life. And I think before we spend a lot of time picking on the people outside in the community, we ought to look at our own internal stigma. Now, that's um, a key message to carry forward on into our next segment, that looking at ourselves, you're a, you're a psychiatrist, Mark, and Chris, you, you've got an earned doctorate in this field, and I, once upon a time, was an MD. Yeah, we have to look at ourselves and what, what has gone on in the names of healthcare and research and those kinds of things. So on that point, I'm going to take the break because I always say this is where we have to pay the rent. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley and my guests are Dr. Chris Somerville and Dr. Mark Regions. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM, Powell River Community Radio, Canada. Please stay with us. We will be back. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Are you happy with the management and leadership style of your organization? Do you think it could use some improvement? No matter the level of leadership at your organization, you'll be sure to learn something new when you tune in to Adesis Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adesis. Through a unique lecture and interview format, we'll bring you ideas, questions, and answers that will help you run any organization, whether for-profit or not. Listen every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Chris Somerville and Dr. Mark Regens. Our topic is mental illness, treatment, recovery, and stigma. Now let's talk about the challenges stigma creates for persons with mental illnesses such as schizophrenia and for their family caregivers. So Chris, starting with you, what are the challenges that stigma creates for persons with schizophrenia? Now you've already, both of you, indicated several of these, but I'd like you to go over these and uh, just emphasize the way in which the stigma 
gets in the way of people with schizophrenia. Chris? Well, stigma is, is, is very wounding, and um, it, it's generally experienced as more long-lasting, uh, uh, threatening, and disabling than the mental illness, as I had said earlier. And when people talk about their lived experience with social prejudice and stigma, they talk about the fact that their identity has been robbed, as well as their personhood, their hope, opportunities, choice, and, and power. And that's why we say that it's not enough to t just talk about stigma, but we have to also talk about the results of stigma. Stigma is an attitude, but it always leads to actions, and those actions we call discrimination. And so in consumer groups that we have uh, among those who come to the schizophrenia societies across Canada, they will talk about those experiences as discrimination. As someone has written, quote, my mental condition is no longer the problem for me. It is others' perceptions of me. That's the difficulty. Without knowing it or even meaning to, it is the general public's perception of my condition, which is what really causes me pain and embarrassment. And I'd also say that what it leads to is social exclusion. You can't really have recovery if you're not included in society. And, and social exclusion means that a person's not able to take part as they would like in society and, and does not have the same opportunities that other people have. And this may include, and I'll run through a list, that the social exclusion may include lack of status, unemployment, limited social networks, lack of opportunity to establish a family, as Marcus said, poor housing or limited access to education. And some people may also face other forms of discrimination uh, based, for example, on their race or ethnicity or on a physical disability. And uh, it's basically a life of rejection and uh, limits their hopes and expectations of living a satisfying life. Mark, over to you. Um, please tell us about the challenges that stigma creates for persons whom the MHA village helps towards recovery. In other words, people are on a road to recovery with the MHA village. What are the stigma-related challenges they experience? Mark? Yeah. Much of this is as Chris was describing, but let me try to t take a, a, a little more into that business about how it affects your growth and your ability to go on with life. So I was talking about how stigma means you, you, you are your illness, that you've dehumanized. So any feelings you get are thought to be symptoms of an illness. This can seem like it's just sort of annoying on the surface of it. But when you think of how to develop normally as a person, like you're an adolescent who's getting angry at your parents, or you're in an early romance fighting with your girlfriend or boyfriend, or you're even in a midlife crisis trying to deal with where your life's gone and disappointments, if all of those feelings are interpreted instead of symptoms, so you're diagnosed as bipolar and given pills, or you're told you have an anger management problem and given pills to calm that down, or you're told you're in a depression and and told don't you shouldn't feel sad. That stops you from developing in the normal human path of development. One of the things that happens is that the illness itself tends to halt development, and drug abuse certainly halts development, but then our treatment and making your illness makes it so subtly you're no longer yourself and that you can no longer grow and develop as a result. And people end up stuck developmentally that they can't keep building their self-responsibility and their emotional growth in life. Chris, Another, uh, sorry, carry on, another, Mark, sorry. Another example 
of, of this as the subtle prejudice of low expectations. I was doing a presentation not long ago where I was talking about a woman who had schizophrenia. She'd been in a hospital for a long time, and she was, she'd gotten out, and she was living in a board and care, and she still had a little bit of voices and paranoia, but she was trying to come out a little and socialize a little. And I asked the group, so what do you think is possible for this lady? Is she a success right now? She's not in a hospital anymore. She's got low-level symptoms. She's taking her meds. Maybe this is a success now. And some groups of people said, oh, no, she can do very much more. She can um, get a job. She could get married. She could go to school. She could get her own apartment. And other groups said, no, I think this is pretty good. Let's make sure she doesn't relapse and go out the hospital. She's better than before. Let's, let's take care of her. That attitude will make a big difference on what happens in her life. As it happened, she was one of our members of the village. We thought it was possible, and she did go on to be the director of a self-help organization to get married, to have her own apartment and condominium, and to get reinvolved with her family's lives. None of that would have been possible with the subtle prejudice of, I think this is good enough, this is about all she can expect, let's just protect her. Sometimes protecting from risk is actually protecting from the opportunities to grow and learn. You can't protect someone into a full recovery. And let me make one other comment following up on something Chris was talking about, the rejection or what he was calling social exclusion. is really stunning, the amount that people just can't get roles in life. They're not accepted to be around you. Who really wants a mentally ill husband or wife or father or mother? You go into a courtroom and the judge says, you have a mental illness, you must not be able to take care of your kids. Let me give custody to your husband or wife. You go to a job and they say, you've lost three years from mental illness, let me not give you that job. I've known people who wanted to go to the military and weren't permitted. I even know one person who's trying to go to Canada just for a vacation, and he happened to have Zyprexa and antipsychotic on his luggage, and they said, you're not welcome here because of that, and turned him away. Now, Mark, I'm going to stop you there because of time, not because of the mention of Canada. Um, (laughs) And I want to go to Chris and ask you, Chris, what the types of help are that persons with schizophrenia and their family caregivers need so that they successfully overcome the challenges that are created for them and that you've described. Chris? Well, here at the Manitoba Schizophrenia Society, where I I work locally with a provincial organization, I think our first responsibility is to see people and not see pathology. In other words, as someone has said, ask not what illness a person has, rather ask what person the illness has. And along with that means just to really listen to people's stories. And what follows that generally, and you radiate this, and it's a sense of hope. People come in very hopeless and helpless, and you might be the first person that inspires them to the concept of recovery, that there is life after mental illness and life with mental illness, and that you can live beyond the limitations of mental illness with a sense of meaning. And so you want to convey that hope to people with lived experience as well as family members. What Mark has taught me is that, you know, we need to... Uh, respond to families of uh, people with mental illnesses as we would with any family with a chronic uh, illness. And so people with other chronic illnesses such as muscle sclerosis or Parkinson's, we don't say to them, well, you're, you're, you know, just go home, take your medicine, your life's over, that's it. I mean, sure, we're, we're interested in symptom reduction, but the goal of the mental health system is not symptom reduction. It's, help, it's to help people get their lives back. And so that that involves staying engaged with people, 
and uh, and uh, not waiting even on there being adherent to medication. I know there's controversy. Well, there's not much you can do for people unless they are taking their meds. I think there's a lot you can do in in terms of being charitable and engaging those people. And and then also, I, I think meaningful engagement of family members and those with lived experience uh, in the planning and implementing and evaluation of mental health services. Uh, families really struggle in terms of feeling left out and being meaningfully involved uh, in the creation of recovery-oriented mental health services. Right. I'm going to now go to Mark. Um, what are the types of help that persons and their family caregivers receive from MHA Village on their journey to recovery so that they can actually deal with these successfully with these challenges. We start exactly the same spot that Chris is describing. We emphasize their roles that aren't the patients. So when you come into the village, it doesn't look like a doctor's office. You're not there necessarily for a doctor's appointment. You don't have to be a patient. You might be here as someone who's here for lunch at the cafe. You might even be the person working making the sandwiches. You might be here as someone who's decorating our Christmas tree. You might be someone working as a janitor. You might be someone helping somebody else in a whole variety of roles so that you're not stuck becoming your illness. Similarly, with your family, we don't just say, oh, you're here, tell us the history of this person's illness and how good are you being a junior doctor at home or case manager or are you undermining someone's treatment. Yesterday, I had a new person and her mom here who she was very worried because her daughter has been homeless for a lot and in and out. And she said, well, I know I'm supposed to worry less and be less concerned and less, and less part of things. And I said, no, every mother is supposed to worry. That's part of your job as a mother. Whether it's healthy for her or not or has to do with her illness or not, don't stop being a mother. Don't stop worrying. Be who you are. Um, and she has to grow given who you are along the way. We practice a lot of normal social relationships and emotional growth with people. So, for instance, instead of having a social skills class, we'll help people with dating behavior just like you would with your friends. You, you help prepare them for a date or tease or how did it go or make sure you buy her something nice and let me check your hair and see how it looks and let's have a wedding shower for you or I've been to people's weddings. Let's actually do the normal behaviors for growth instead of having classes or treatments about them. One of my favorite metaphors for the village is we're like the island of misfit toys in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. That this is a place people can come who are different. Remember, it was like the, the snowman who was too big and the elf who was wanted to be a dentist and the jack-in-the-box who was, wasn't jack. But if that was all, if they just found that place of acceptance and they just stayed there forever, that would be a dumb story. The story works because each of them found their own gifts there and found a way to reconnect to the community. The elf was able to be a dentist. Rudolph was able to lead the sleigh. They found ways to return to the community. This often involves doing community development, building partnerships, finding landlords who are proud to help you with mental illnesses get better, to say you've worked with us before. We even have people who tell their own story of mental illnesses as a housing developer in order to get them to give people a chance. The people with employers, instead of doing a seminar about the illness, we actually have them have internships of people there so they get used to people with schizophrenia doing being good worker. We have close with our policemen. We look for welcoming and try to develop it throughout our community. We also try to promote positive media events and coverage. We have a large award ceremony once a year of people who have their own apartment for a year, stayed off drugs for a year, raising their own children or got a job or completed something in school. And we honor people in the community and there's local TV coverage and things like that to show mental illness isn't just about when someone shoots somebody. 
On the other hand, when someone does shoot somebody, we try to get involved, too. In America, we have that shooting at the Batman movie, and I wrote an editorial for the local newspaper saying this isn't time to lock up all the people with mental illnesses. It's time for us to make it through together. Another uh, one of the most powerful things for fighting stigma is speaker panels of people telling their own stories, both people with mental illnesses, family members, or even people like me or professionals talking about stories of what we've been through to humanize the whole thing. It's now, easy Mark, to... sorry again, but time no is up, up against us. I'm going to stop you there. I wish I didn't have to stop you. That's but cool. I, I was at the end. Okay. So let's take the short break. This is Dr. Gordon Averley, and my guests are Dr. Chris Somerville and Dr. Mark Radians. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM, Powell River Community Radio, Canada. Stay tuned. We're coming back. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel, voiceamericaempowerment.com. If you are having difficulty balancing everything in your life, be sure to tune in to Change is Personal with Kim Fuller. Each week, we'll help you do your own self-assessment to handling relationships, family, life challenges, health, and personal goals. Kim and her guests share from experiences and offer advice and resources to keep your life on track. Change is Personal with Kim Fuller can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Listen and start having a fuller life. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Chris Somerville and Dr. Mark Ragins. Our topic is mental illness, treatment, recovery and stigma. Let's talk about the consequences if people with mental illnesses, including schizophrenia and also others, don't receive or don't act on the help they need to successfully deal with the challenges created for them by stigma. So, Chris, first for you, what do you see as the consequences if people with particularly schizophrenia don't get the help they need or don't take the um, advice they need? Well, unfortunately, uh, you're, you're going to see a lot of suffering, to use that word. You're going to see a lot of hopelessness and, and helplessness. And the main message I would communicate is that it hinders the whole recovery process, the possibility that people can live beyond the limitations of a mental illness. And, and what that means is, is living with a sense of hope and meaning and purpose and, and having a sense of well-being and you know, as I've studied it and listened to people talk about their recovery stories, there's there's three dimensions of recovery we could perhaps uh, talk about. 
number one is personal recovery, and that is that regaining of hope and meaning and, and, and purpose and a sense of identity. And that's very important because uh, Dr. Larry Davidson talks about in his, his book, Living Outside of Mental Illness and Schizophrenia, that uh, one of the challenges of developing a, a severe mental illness like schizophrenia is that at the time it comes upon a person in their adolescence is that it hinders the whole formation of self-identity. And so part of the recovery process is, is that gaining or regaining that identity and esteem, which I would call personal recovery. And then there's uh, social recovery, which is the social inclusion, uh, integration back into society and being accepted by society. And then there's the illness recovery, which may mean that there, there will be no symptoms or signs of illness again, but in many cases there are. But nonetheless, the person uh, learns to manage their illnesses with any uh, illness. But um, I just want to quote another person who, who, who wrote here. Uh, he said, I was just 20 years old when my a uh, consultant psychiatrist told me that I would never work again. It is soul-destroying to be told by a professional, someone I looked up to and who was there to help, that you won't work or achieve anything in life. And I think uh, we see that all too often t- today. And uh, we, we have to move towards recovery-oriented uh, services instead of what I call pathologically-oriented mental health services. Right. Mark? Uh, what do you see as these consequences if people with mental illnesses of any kind don't receive or get the help they need to deal with these challenges? What's the help? I'd, I'd like to focus on that when most of the time when we're offering help, we're offering it with increased stigma attached to it. That we the actually at receiving help from us actually often makes stigma and challenges worse. And many of the... So, Paradoxically, many of the people we see most successful in combating stigma are the least compliant with the normal mental health system. Our normal mental health system, when something violent happens, we exploit it in order to build fear so we can ask for more money. We demean the helping efforts of families instead of raising them up far too often or the self-help. And we think that you need us for everything, that everyone needs to come to a professional, needs to have medications to make it through. And many people can get more emotional support and more help and recovery from other people besides us. Also, we tend to be very risk-aversive, trying to keep people away from the opportunities to grow, to keep them stabilized and keep our communities um, happy. To give an example, I once met a pair of identical triplets who were introduced to us because two of them had schizophrenia and one had manic depression. They thought this was very unusual. How could three identical genetically people have two different illnesses? The two with schizophrenia had gotten psychotic in their late teens, and then had done everything they were told. They got on medications. They stopped working like they were told they shouldn't. They got on benefits, lived in group homes, and they looked rather passive, overweight. They smoked too much, and they looked very blunt that they looked at schizophrenia. The other brother, he responded differently. He also got psychotic in late teens, but he rejected almost everything. He would, get, As soon as he got out of the hospital, he ran away from mental illness things. He tried to build a life doing all kinds of things, but he would fail after a year or two, get very psychotic, fall apart, be back in the hospital. And then the minute he'd get out, he'd start again with a life, only to fall apart again. And this looked to be an episodic illness, like manic depression. I don't believe these people had different illnesses. I believe that the way they responded changed their life dramatically so they even ended up in different categories. And I think it's a shame when we give people only those two choices of either massive compliance and giving up on your life or massive noncompliance and pursuing things and not being able to benefit from 
med- using medications and therapy in a productive way as a person instead of taking them as a p- patient. Now, I'm going back to you, Chris, but I'm going to be asking you both essentially the same question, which is how can the consequences that you've talked about be minimized? Now, the quick answer, of course, is that people should receive the kind of care and help that you've both been describing. But that raises the question of just how far the healthcare systems are prepared to go with the kind of services that you both are either advocating or providing. So, Chris, I'm asking the question how these consequences you've both been talking about can be minimized. Well, I'll speak broadly and generically and leave it for Mark to speak more specifically, but but I think there has to be a transformation in society of how we we view mental illnesses. I mean, most people do not know very much about mental health problems, and and much of what they do know or think they know is, is inaccurate. And one of the best ways to correct that inaccurate picture is what's called here in Canada contact-based education. And that's where people with lived experience of mental illnesses talk, uh, talk about their story. They talk about whatever uh, devastations or hindrances they've had, but they also talk about the hope and what has helped facilitate their recovery process, and as well as family members doing the same thing. The second thing I would mention is that we also need a transformation of the mental health system to being more of that of how Mark has described it with all of his wonderful illustrations of what they do there in, in, in his setting, and that moving from the traditional model uh, to that of what's known now in the literature as, as recovery-oriented mental health systems. And then the third thing I would say is that we need a transformation uh, as a society and how we respond to people, because I think this is not just a health issue, it's a social justice issue. When we are two of the wealthiest countries in the world, and we know more today about mental illnesses from the neurosciences and the social sciences, and we know the reality and the evidence-based evidence for recovery, and, and for people not to be offered recovery-oriented mental health services, to have an adequate income, uh, lack of workplace accommodation, um, not being able to have safe, affordable housing or psychological support services, which are not covered here in Canada, then that's no longer a health issue. That's a social justice issue to me. Mark, it's the same question. Minimizing the consequences that you both described um, by fundamental changes of the kind that Chris has been talking about. Mark? Let me focus, although I love changing the world probably more than the next guy, I want to focus this on what the actual person with mental illness could do today, given the world the way it is right now. Because recovery, when you get down to it, isn't something that the treatment system or society does for you or to you. It has to be something you take responsibility for and you do for yourself. My main piece of advice is to work hard to be in treatment without giving yourself up to treatment that you can use the benefits without turning yourself into a full-time patient. I want to give two examples of that. One is maintain and build as much self-responsibility as possible. Describing yourself as a victim of stigma or is no more empowering than describing yourself as a victim of illness. Make opportunities for yourself and then make good on them. Working hard on your own to go forward is, is a way to succeed in life whether you have a mental illness or not, recovery is very hard work. 
The other piece of advice that goes with this is to fight the temptation of dependency. Sometimes when you're under severe duress, it's tempting to say you're mentally ill and that's the best you can do. For example, when a public defender wants to get you off from the jail by sending you to a hospital instead, or when you choose to live in a group home where they take care of everything, you don't have to do any laundry or cooking or cleaning, or when you just think it would be easier not to go back to school or work. It's really hard. Let me just live on disability, be less stressful. All those kinds of decisions to give in to the temptation of dependency have a huge cost along the way. You're giving up a big part of who you are, your future, your soul, and hope. And so I'd say for the person with the mental illness, to keep fighting, to be as full as you can, to try new things, to learn from your mistakes, to build resiliency in the face of things going wrong. This is a terrible task to have to do, an extra burden that the vast majority of people do not have to deal with. But expecting someone else to do it for you or the world to become a better place is a good way to give up self-responsibility and to become more dependency and not to get to the end. Recovery is on the person themselves, the vast majority of it, no matter how much we want to help as outsiders. So let me just summarize back to you a message. Um, I may not have it right, so I'll be putting it in this way. Um, Recovery-oriented care, the kind that you're both talking about, aims at enabling, encouraging people with these challenges to make the very best of the success that they can achieve. That is, you're helping them live the social normal life in society, fulfilling themselves and their capabilities. Chris, first, agree or disagree with that? Well, Chris? I, yes, certainly I would agree, agree with it and uh, the whole message of what Mark has been talking about. Okay. Mark, your view, my summary back to I, you. I agree, except for I don't agree about the. You made it sound too much like a bowl of cherries or everything was successes and dramatic good things. You get to have the same messed up life with its ups and downs as everybody else. Normal life doesn't include. You get the, the dignity to fail and to suffer. I was with a lady yesterday whose dog was murdered while she was homeless in her tent, and she wanted medications to not feel. And I said, no, this is, you should feel sad. You love that dog. It's this tragic. Part of being a life is feeling the suffering as well, feeling the negative to grow. We don't just dampen things with medications. So don't expect recovery means life will be wonderful. Right. So there's a reality to life that's got to be grasped and grappled with as well. And it isn't always, and this is repeating back to you what I've understood, that it's going to be the bowl of cherries, a life of ease and uh, success that comes without effort or struggle. Um, I'm assuming that I'm more or less right on that one, am I? Yes, you are. You're trying to get to a full life with all of the shades. And I don't mean by, by picking on that second part, I don't mean to at all disagree with the first part about enabling people growing and hope and responsibility and the stuff you're emphasizing at first. That was all. I'm right on board with that. I just don't expect life to always go well, even when you're doing well. Right. Life has its challenges. Now, on that point, the time challenges is with us once more. So we're going to take a short break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Dr. Chris Somerville and Dr. Mark Regins. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM, Powell River Community Radio, Canada. Stay tuned. We're coming back. 
Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Chris Somerville and Dr. Mark Regens. Our topic is mental illness, treatment, recovery, and stigma. Now let's talk about ways to increase efforts to combat the challenges and consequences created by stigma for persons with mental illnesses of various kinds and your, mass- and your messages for the family caregivers. Now, Mark, starting with you, please, what do you want to see done to bring more help uh, to combat these challenges? In other words, it's what everybody else should do. You've talked about what the individuals themselves should do, point well accepted but now what about society as a whole what do you want to see done to help combat these challenges so i i think my broad thing is to be able to see things more from their point of view instead of ours to imagine what it's like to look at life through their eyes instead the things that we see as helpful or as caring do they come off as traumatizing or infantilizing or stigmatizing to them and i think we should always be looking at what does this look like from the other side of the of the table what does it look like to them because recovery is their view not our view and if we go back to my original three things we can fight dehumanizing by seeing the whole person instead of the diagnosis that we shouldn't call people schizophrenics instead of people with schizophrenia. And we should, instead of writing a history of present illness, we should tell a story of their life. And it should include their strengths, include things that they're good about the person, their capabilities, not just the things that have gone wrong because of the illness. I think we can fight prejudice by emphasizing positive lives. I think we get into the what's called the clinician's illusion, that people can do no better than the people we see at our worst moments, that they can't do well, and we start holding people back. And we don't see other things in their lives. The other day, we were had a group from the library who was running a fundraiser with us, and she wanted to donate a bunch of books to the Homeless Drop-In Center, a program called Take a Book, Book on a Journey. And so she said to me, so what kind of books do you suppose people with mental illnesses would like to read? Maybe things are self-help or about psychology or something. 
And I said, you know, I don't think it's their mental illness that reads. I think there's still other parts of their person. They like the whole range of other books, whether it's crummy mysteries or romance novels or military things or spy things. And she, you could see the light bulb go on her in her that she was thinking of them as pe- mentally ill people reading rather than the person themselves. She wasn't seeing the whole person. And the third one is I think we can fight rejection by fighting fear. To decrease, it, statistics don't help much in fighting fear. Staying calmer, staying together through things, building inclusion so that we know people. And when it, something bad does happen, we go through it together instead of blaming or saying that's because of their mental illness. The fear is the enemy of inclusion, and it's, it's what builds stigma more and more. The more we can be around people with less fear, the better chance we have. Right. Chris, what do you want to see done to bring more help to combat these challenges we're talking about and their consequences. Chris? Mark has spoke as an eloquent therapist, and uh, I love him to death, uh, to be quite honest, in his work. Uh, I speak as an advocate, and so I look at a systems approach as well. And so, number one, we need to work with the media in terms of how they report mental illness because a lot of people's viewpoints about mental illness are gained from how the media reports on mental illness and and violence and trying to make a correlation there from high-profile cases. So we need to work with editorial boards and journalism students. Secondly, I think that uh, we need to address the stigma that's inherent within uh, the mental health system and service providers, as as Mark has alluded to earlier, uh, because that can be very damaging and hindering of the recovery process. Thirdly, I think, you know, we have to pay more attention and assist families in terms of supporting them and uh, support programs and psychoeducation groups that they need. Uh, Here in Canada, as I said on the board of the Mental Health Commission of Canada, we are working on a set of guidelines for working with families so that meaningful engagement and and, and involvement for families so that they feel supported and understood. Fourthly, I think we have to create a social movement, at least here in Canada. I know Glenn Close, uh, the American actress, has done much with her organization called Bring Change to Mind, and that's not the the word to, but the numerical number to, Bring Change to Mind. Uh, Here in Canada, we have Partners for Mental Health that's seeking to be a catalyst uh, for a social movement, a grassroots movement, so as to change that social prejudice and to create a positive social movement that will lead to, and now I'll go to number five, and that is to create the political will to address the medical and social uh, inequities and the disparities that are in our mental health system and in the world uh, of people living with mental health problems. And so I think if we could make those changes, I mean, those are that's a big vision, but I think it would uh, be a far more compassionate world, a more humane world, and um, an end to uh, how we horribly treat so many people with lived experience of mental illness being ghettoized, stigmatized, and discriminized. Right. Mark, what's your message to family caregivers in the situations we're talking about? I think I've become kinder to family members as I've become older and have children who are now 25 and 24 myself. I used to give a lot of really bad advice before I had my own kids. And I think it's important to be somewhat humble in the face of the suffering that families are going through. This isn't just do these three things and your life will be fine. There's tons of suffering involved with being having mental illness and being a family member. My two pieces of advice that's offered somewhat humbly are 
to remember that your family members are people first and not their illness first. Although it's really tempting to separate and say that's their bipolar making them do that or that's why they're off their meds and that's why they were mean to me. It's all part of them, even the illness. The whole person, even whatever symptoms they're dealing with, is your family member. If you can't accept them, including their illness, how are they ever going to be able to do that and then accept that they need to deal with their illness? The other thing is, this may be nothing like the life you expected or hoped for, for yourselves or for your family member, but this is actually the life they're living. Do some grief to get past the life you expected, and you can still facilitate the life that they're having to be dealt to develop as positively as possible, even under the cloud of serious illness. You're still their family. You're still the main people people um, love and go to and can help them grow in a life, even though it isn't the one you would have imagined for them. Right. Chris, what's your message to family caregivers? Well, I certainly agree with what Mark has said, realizing that 40 to 70 percent of families are the primary caregivers for people with lived experience of schizophrenia. And uh, being a family member myself, I, I know how it can reduce social uh, networks and bring about um, uh, or rather diminish family esteem. And, and for many families, it depletes family resources, being the primary caregiver, and can lead to family burnout. And um, so I would say to family members, as a family member, uh, there is hope, uh, recovery is possible. Uh, confront uh, the effects of stigma on, on you and how it's affected your family. I'd say, secondly, deal with your own internalized stigma and, and, and get help and support for that. And uh, thirdly, as Mark has um, uh, alluded to, uh, he didn't use the word, but uh, don't pathologize your loved one. Uh, see them as a person. Uh, pay attention to what you talk about. If you're always talking about the illness, then you're illness-focused, and that's what I call pathologizing. And then create an environment of recovery in your own family system. Uh, not that the family causes or creates the schizophrenia, but if, it's, if there's unhealthy family dynamics within the family, um, and there's some unhealthy dynamics in every family, uh, you know, we all should work t- towards a healthier family relationships and, and dynamics of, of faith, hope, and love. And then I know that compassion burnout is a reality for many people and to, to seek help uh, for, for that as well. Right. Now, I have a question for you both, but so let me spell out the question. It comes from a guest on an episode uh, who was somebody who was telling his story about living with uh, a mental illness, a mental health challenge. And I asked him at the end, same sort of question I just asked you both, well, what would you like to see, what would he like to see done? And his reply was, he would like to see education in schools for school kids to understand more and better about what mental illness is or is not. Uh, first of all, with Mark, what, what is your reaction to this man's um, recommendation? What do you think of it? I I actually don't agree too much. I think we often think education is a solution for stigma, but many people are very well-educated, and I don't think you'll find doctors who are well-educated to be any less stigmatizing than other people. I think stigma is fought far more often through compassion, through inclusion, through acceptance, through involvement, than it's fought through education. I 
I think it did much more for my kids to be less stigmatizing that they had special ed kids mainstreamed into their own classes, and they had to make allowances for them and had to be able to adapt and make find friends and have these experiences say, I can be around kids with handicaps and disabilities of all kinds. I think the experiences are what frights prejudices, not education in a sort of didactic way. Perfectly fair. Chris, what do you think? Well, while agreeing with, with Mark, I think that uh, uh, mental health literacy and mental health promotion uh, should become a part of public health and uh, to normalize it as much as we can, uh, the emphasis on resiliency and well-being and uh, people achieving positive mental health. Uh, Corey Keyes has taught us a lot of, about the fact that um, there's a lot of people who don't have a mental illness and who do not lead a productive life and, and, and go to work and uh, the phenomenon that we call presenteeism in, in, in which uh, they're not able to give uh, their best to their workplace. And so positive mental health for all of us is very important and the point I want to make as we come to the end of the program is that people with mental illnesses can also have positive mental health. The opposite of mental illness is, is, is not mental health. The opposite of mental illness is no mental illness and uh, it's four quadrants. It's a quadrant and so a person can have a mental illness and have positive mental illness or a person may not have any mental illness and have negative mental illness. So the emphasis, I think, you know, mental health literacy, promotion, prevention, and early intervention. Some of the mentally healthiest people I know have serious mental illnesses. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And are also very productive people. That's right. Right? Mm -hmm. right. That's right. Now, unfortunately, we are coming to the end of the uh, of this particular show. And I want to say, first of all, thank you to Chris and Mark um, for the insights that you've shared with your your insights and your advice and your sense of what's to happen. Um, so I, I'd finish by wishing you both every success in what you're doing and, if I may go this far, to encourage you in getting the word out about what your work is and does and how it should be better understood by, let's call them the powers that be. And if this program, if this uh, re recording helps you do that, then I'll have helped you. So I want to also say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear from you about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. And in our next episode, we'll talk about family caregiving, employee health and safety, and productivity. So please join us, same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. <laughs>